0: Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs at AEI, where we connect college and university students with our nation's leading scholars through conferences, seminars, campus events, and this podcast. This episode of the Campus Exchange is another conversation following the October 7th terrorist attack in Israel against the Jewish people. Much attention in these weeks have been given to the responses to the 10-7 atrocities from American college and university campuses, and rightly so. Today on the show, AEI Collegiate Network member Joshua Jankelow from Stanford University interviews AEI's Director of Domestic Policy Studies, Matthew Continetti, and they cover a lot of ground, not only what's happened and what's happening on campuses, but also they go deeper to seek to understand why anti-Semitism may have festered and reared its head again here today. AEI scholars continue to provide moral clarity and clear-eyed expertise during these dark days following the conflict. I hope today's interview is helpful for you to process all of these rapidly unfolding events. I do want to note that this conversation you're going to listen to was recorded on Monday, October 30th.
1: Thank you, Jeff. My name is Joshua Janklow, and I'm a senior at Stanford studying economics and political science. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Matthew Continetti, an AI scholar who's the director of domestic policy studies and the inaugural Patrick and Charlene Neal Chair in American Prosperity at the American Enterprise Institute, where his work is focused on American political thought and history with a particular focus on the development of the Republican Party and the American conservative movement in the 20th century. A prominent journalist and analyst, author, and intellectual historian of the right, Mr. Continetti was the founding editor and editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Previously, he was the uh, an opinion editor at the Weekly Standard. Mr. Continetti, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me, Joshua. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Fantastic. So I think before launching in, um, And uh, anti-Semitism is raging across college campuses in the US uh, in light of the Israel-Gaza war. When discussing events in Israel, it ought to be noted, of course, that not all critiques of the Israeli government and its politics are anti-Semitic, but there are very clear lines between valid critiques and anti-Semitic attacks, uh, chief among them celebration of Hamas's massacre and calling for a one-state solution. Could you expand on that a little bit for our listeners?
2: Well, I'd be happy to. I think that uh, we should view the idea that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism very seriously. To do that, we need to understand what anti-Zionism is. As you say in your question, anti-Zionism is not criticism of the Israeli government. Uh, Anti-Zionism is not disagreement with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Anti-Zionism... Is not a, a call for a two state solution. Anti Zionism has three components. One is double standards, that is, holding Israel to a standard to which other countries are not held. Another is demonization, talking about Israel as a force for evil, uh, calling Israel war criminals or the perpetrators of genocide. The worst form of this demonization is when Israel is likened to the Nazis who destroyed Jewish civilization in Europe 75 years ago. And then there's also delegitimization, anti-Zionism, the delegitimization of the Jewish state, the only nation in the world for Jews. When you have double standards, demonization and delegitimization, the the three Ds that I take from Natan Sharansky, uh, the the dissident author and former Israeli politician, you have anti-Zionism. And that is anti-Semitic because it is an intentional targeting of the Jewish people of their Jewish state. And when you call to eliminate the Jewish state, you are really calling for the elimination of Jews. And there's no other way to describe that call as anti-Semitic.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that clarity as well. Uh, I really appreciate the delineation of, of the three Ds, as you mentioned. And I think, think it rings very true that uh, denying a people the right to statehood in whatever form it might be, is certainly denying them rights uh, in general and their right to self-determination, which unfortunately is something that we're definitely seeing on on college campuses right now as well. And I wanted to look at your October 12th column for the Washington Beacon titled The Shame of Academe. Uh, And in in that article, you say that the toxic atmosphere of anti-Semitism seen in many campuses after the Hamas attack are evidence of Western confusion and decadence. Uh, And I really love that quote, and I would love to delve more into it and and break it up a little bit. So what in your mind has created this confusion? And could you also expand on what you mean by decadence? Does this have anything to do with the uh, quieting or coddling of the American mind, as it were? What do you you see has led to this, and and how how would you continue to define it?
2: Well, a decadence is a dropping off. I've long resisted the idea that America is a decadent society. And my friend Ross Douthat wrote a book with that title. And I I, I believe in America and in American exceptionalism. I think there are many strengths to our society. There's great power and reserve in our society and in our country. And so I resisted the idea that we were in a period of decline or decadence of falling off until I've witnessed the reaction among young people on the campuses of this country after the 10-7 massacre, because what I see, when I see people blaming Jews for their own victimization, which is another anti-Semitic trope, I see a lack of moral clarity. I see a confusion about our friends and our allies as Americans. Uh, I see a decadence in the ways in which our culture-forming institutions have communicated to the rising generation what this country stands for, what this country, America, has stood for in the world, our relationship with the Jewish people, but also with the state of Israel, a state that was born with American support, that survived during the Yom Kippur War of 1973, because of American support. America and Israel need each other. To be confused about this or to deny this idea is to me a sign that the men and women tasked with educating the next generation of Americans have failed. They have failed to uphold standards. They have failed to set responsibilities and they have failed to communicate how america should approach the world how america should view anti-semitism how as we said earlier how anti-zionism is anti-semitism and this failure i think has contributed to the most hostile environment for jewish students on america's campuses easily in a 100 years if not ever
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and yeah, as you said, I re- I love that definition of decadence as a dropping off. And uh, even since the column came out for the Washington Beacon, uh, we've dropped off even further and perhaps at sort a of faster a faster pace. Uh, looking at Jewish students being assaulted at several universities and surrounded.
2: Well, it's it's like the it's like the quote. Yeah, it's like uh, the I think it's from a Hemingway novel or maybe a Fitzgerald novel where they say, you know, how did you go bankrupt? Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. said, well, first slowly but then very quickly. And that's how the universities have gone bankrupt. It's been a slow process. You mentioned Alan Bloom's great classic, The Closing of the American Mind, published in 1987. Of course, William F. Buckley Jr.'s book, God and Man at Yale, published in 1951, critiquing the state of American higher education. So there have been many critiques from the center-right where I find myself about the state of America's schools and so that has been a gradual assessment of the decline of higher education. But what we have seen since 10-7 is a sudden collapse. I mean, when you have violence committed against Jewish students, when you have cultures of intimidation at places like Cooper Union, Cornell University of Jewish students, a singling out of the Jewish student population. This is a minority population in institutions that profess to be the guardians of minorities and the believers in diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is outrageous. It's outrageous, and it needs to be called to account, and there need to be sanctions for the individuals who are perpetrating these anti-Semitic acts and
1: movements. Well said. Um, I'd love to pick up on that a little bit more and dig into what you said about the guardians of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the guardians of uh, minorities as well. Why do you think that, within the general scope of universities that set these mandates of very explicit inclusion and and tend to skew rather left, why do you think that they've turned on Israel, despite Israel generally being a bastion for the values that they preach? Um, It's the most LGBTQ inclusive space, I'd argue, in most major countries of the world, but beyond that, certainly in the Middle East with the low bar that's been set there. And, and generally, a lot of Israeli politics also tends to lean towards the left, both economically and socially. Is there just, is that just, does that stem from ignorance? Is it an example of another double standard? Um, why do you think that there's this lack of acknowledgement for how Israel is arguably a haven for many of the values universities would love to preach?
2: It's a great question. There's a lot to be said about the changing nature in which the right and the left view Israel mm-hmm. uh, over, the, over the 75 years of its existence. I want to focus on one element of that, which is the dominant paradigm in America's universities for at least the past 30 years. This is the paradigm of oppressor oppressed. Everything must be interpreted through the lens of victim and victimizer. And thanks to the work of the literary critic Edward Said and his work Orientalism, appearing in the late 1970s, the academy its professors, and all of, this is the most crucial part, the bureaucratic institutions, the support mechanisms for these diversity, equity, inclusion programs have latched on to this frame of victim and victimizer, oppressed and oppressor, and they look at Israel as the victimizer and as the oppressor, and they look at the Palestinians as the victims or the oppressed and they are so wedded to this dichotomy that they view hamas a terrorist organization a murderous cult which oppresses the palestinian people which was holding the palestinians hostage gaza is occupied by hamas it is not occupied by israel Israel left Gaza in 2005. The occupiers in Gaza are the terrorists of Hamas. And yet the professors and the administrators and many of the students view Israel as the oppressor, Israel as the victimizer. And that is driving so much of the discourse on American campuses. It is a complete falsehood. It is ignorance. You were right to raise ignorance, ignorance about the realities and the history of the conflict. Ignorance about is Israel's politics and culture. Think about what we've just experienced over the past several months in Israel, right? Regardless of one's views on the proposed judicial reform, right? There were hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Israel crying out for democracy, right? Demokratia, that's, that is an expression of liberal values, which those bien-pensants on, on the left in the West supposedly uphold. And yet so quickly, so quickly, the major culture-forming institutions in the West, in the United States, the academy, the media, social media, have turned toward ignorance of willful ignorance of the atrocities that Hamas committed on October the 7th and turned away from that and turned toward a, a, a focus on what is happening in the Gaza Strip, where they make no distinction, it seems to me, between the civilian population of Gaza and the terrorist army of Hamas. And so this is, this is ignorance, but it's also cloudy thinking, and it's also, most importantly, ideology. The ideology of someone like Edward Said the ideology of post-colonial theory the ideology that says you are either the colonizer or the colonized and Israel the world's most successful post-colonial state is somehow the colonizer in this equation yeah again it's just it's it's so ignorant that it has to be ideology at work
1: i really like what you said as well about it being willful ignorance as well because that ideological framework um, of oppressor and oppressed works so well and is so nicely packageable in the classroom uh, that I think it's, it's a very difficult trope to break. And uh, one of the common chants that we're seeing on campuses is by any means necessary, quite genuinely celebrating the hamas Marcus massacre. And it almost seems like you could extrapolate that to the classroom as well, which is, we'll stick to this narrative by any means necessary. Is that something that can be fixed? Or is that endemic to the university and academic system, do you think?
2: Well, you can always fix bad thought. You might not be able to convince the bad thinkers that they're wrong. It's very hard to convince someone that they're wrong. You can try to address the bad thought in the next generation. That's why this fight for ideas is so important. But you can also try to address the shortcomings of the institutions, And these institutions, these universities we have known for some time, they are an ideological archipelago throughout the country that are part of an adversary culture that is extremely critical of the Western inheritance, extremely critical of the American idea, extremely critical of traditional institutions from the two-parent family to law enforcement to religion in public. We've known that for some time. And so what has happened on our campuses since October 7th reinforces the idea that people who believe in all the things I just mentioned, people who believe in the very things that the ideologues on our campus despise, we need to do more to address the institutional defects, that are giving rise to this culture of hatred on America's campuses. Who would have thought that we would see some of the sites of the past three weeks in the United States of America? We suffered a terrible terrorist attack in the United States on September 11, 2001. I was a junior in college when the 9-11 attacks took place. That, It would never had occurred to me or any of my other students or anyone in this country that the response within days to the 9-11 attacks would be young people on campus or in some city streets in the United States cheering these acts, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, as a form of legitimate resistance. That is exactly what has happened on America's campuses. Since 10, seven. And so it boggles the mind, and, and we can't be paralyzed with, with the enormity of what we're seeing. We have to think seriously about how we can address this so that it doesn't happen again. Never again actually has to mean something. And you know, so many of us, I think myself included, we always viewed those words almost in the abstract. But since 107 and everything that has happened in Israel, in the Middle East, in America, you begin to understand: no, those words do mean something, and they have to mean something if the Jewish people are to have a future.
1: Yeah, very, very well, well put. Um, it's interesting that you explain "never again" ringing so true now. Uh, It's quite interesting. I've seen a lot of tweets, and I certainly resonate to an extent with people saying that the Holocaust is starting to make a lot more sense, uh, and the general sense of abandonment that the Jewish people feel is making a lot more sense. A lot of us are covering our yarmulkes with baseball caps. Um, Our buildings are locked in the front door. We loop around.
2: I think the explanation for that, Joshua, is, look, we've been in a period of rising anti-Semitism for some time now, for at least 10 years, much more vicious in Western Europe than in the United States. But even in the past few years in the United States, we have seen attacks on Jewish congregations, such as the Tree of Life. We saw we have seen physical attacks, assaults on uh, what I, you might call visibly Jewish believers, people who wear the kippo, you know, people who wear a black hat. All of those attacks have been viewed through a framework of isolated antisemitism.
1: Semitism. Yeah.
2: These were individuals who were bigoted and expressing their hate by attacking other individuals. What makes the past three weeks so alarming is that this is anti-Semitism in the framework of a movement. Yeah. It is a movement taking place. We're talking about higher education. There were walkouts and expressions of support for the res, quote-unquote re- resistance mm-hmm. in high schools, in American high schools. So this is a movement that is affecting all f- levels
1: of education. And students will get extra credit as well for engaging. Yeah, you get credit for it, right, yeah, to walk yeah. out
2: in support of a Gaza. Mm-hmm. And not in support of the plight of, again, the, the Gazans mm-hmm. who are suffering because of Hamas. Mm-hmm. Like in support of from the river to the sea, let Israel be free, which again, referring back to what we were discussing about anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. That is Mm -hmm. an anti-Semitic statement,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: right? Because you are calling for the elimination of the state of Israel when you say those words. So that is why I think the past few weeks have been so disturbing to me and to many others, is that it was one thing to say, yeah, there's some terrible anti-Semites in the world. Maybe they're being... um, Emboldened by currents in world politics or in domestic politics, but uh, those are individuals. Now we look out and we see everything from what's happening on 107 to an attempted pogrom of a a flight from Israel in Dagestan to what's happening in America's cities and on our campuses. That means not only is a response called for, but the response must be comprehensive. Mm-hmm. because of the scale of the threat.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I really love that, that antisemitism as a movement point. And on that note of movements, you actually hauntingly mentioned in the article as well how universities were breeding grounds for fascism in the 1930s. Um, is there something that we can learn from that period to today other than how to describe and see the antisemitism that were happening? Do we have a solution framework perhaps or to prevent history from repeating itself or rhyming?
2: well um the first thought i have is of orwell's quote that mm-hmm. some ideas are so stupid only intellectuals could believe them yeah <laughs> so it's the very people who consider themselves the most sophisticated the most theoretical the most intellectual again and again they fall for the most bankrupt dehumanizing ideologies whether that was bolshevism mm-hmm. whether that was fascism and national socialism or whether it is today the Hamasnik and the occupation uh, movement which targets Jews. So you can always depend on the intellectuals, it seems to me, to get everything wrong. So what does it mean? Well, it means, one, we need our own counterintellectuals to explain why it is wrong, to explain why anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. It means that we need to move from a position which felt that, well, everybody needs better education, right? So many resources have been poured into Holocaust education over the past two generations. You look at some of these campuses, you look at some of these public opinion numbers, it hasn't worked.
1: It's not working. Yeah, yeah. They've taken it and applied the definition it, of Holocaust actually to the response in Gaza. Yes. Fascinating.
2: So what that means is uh, the education needs to change because it's not working, but also there needs to be some accountability here. You cannot sign a letter calling Israel a genocidal state or war criminal state, or denying the Hamas atrocities or saying that uh, Israel is um, guilty of war crimes. You can call for all that if you want. This is a free country. But you should also recognize that with all of our rights, there are some duties as well, and the duty of free speech is that you are responsible for what you say and so I think it is completely legitimate to say that if you put your name on these petitions, then you you're not going to get the high powered job high highly compensated job that you expected after attending an ivy League school say um if the in universities oversee this environment where Jewish students are being told to stay in their rooms, well, then the university should pay a penalty. Maybe that penalty comes in the form of donors, but there may be other contexts in which political power is necessary to say, you cannot continue to have this type of environment, which seems to me to be a breeding ground for hate. All right? So I think it's not just education, we also have to think seriously about policy responses. Constitutional, rule of law, constitutional and rule of law are exactly the values that Israel is trying to uphold. They're exactly the values that America is trying to uphold, and they are exactly the values that the ideological opponents of Israel and the United States deny. So yes, let's follow the law. Let's follow the constitution, but let us not allow our support for the Constitution to immobilize us in responding to this hate.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think what's also frightening about what you mentioned about the expectation that these people will go on to uh, high power jobs. These universities are feeder schools into uh, positions like the Senate, the American Bar Association, or groups that could very quickly become co-opted by the, the delegation. Or that, the House of Representatives,
2: where 16 exactly as representatives happening. voted either against or present on a pro Israel resolution mm-hmm. introduced into the Congress. It's 16. That, yeah. that, that number itself, 20 years ago, would have been much, much lower.
1: Yeah. yeah. And without accountability, that number only grows. Absolutely. Uh, yes, you're right. Tragically yeah. enough. I actually wanted to to touch on that moving broadly into. I have a political discussion, and uh, from universities into the House of Representatives, as you say. For example, what I think that delegation has done exceptionally well uh, is they've used frameworks of, of globalism or proportionality of response, for example, and, and weaponized those in turn to get the masses to turn against Israel. Why do you think they've been so successful at taking those broad, sweeping frameworks? Um, and making it seem like the right moral cause. We've always been supportive of, of uh, condemning hatred, so surely we should be supportive of, of Hamas cause. You know? mm-hmm. how, how do you think they did that so successfully?
2: Well, um, I mean, let's just look at the socialist squad, the core group, right? And so you're talking about representatives such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar. Um, one mechanism they have is social media. They have been able to find uh, an audience over social media. Um, they have, social media amplifies their message. Social media rewards the type of cry-bully posture that they always assume. So Taleb and Omar in particular can say the most hateful things about Israel. They can indulge in anti-Semitic tropes. And yet the second someone tries to call them on it, they pretend that they're the victim, right? It's classic cry-bully behavior. And on social media, that's rewarded with more likes, more follows, more clicks. I think the technological aspect here can't be denied. At the same time, uh, they, they, Ocasio-Cortez, and the rest of the squad are very good at playing off the most... I don't want to call it sophisticated, but the, la- the latest trend in social justice thought. And it is just a fact that the millennial generation and Gen Z, people between the ages of, say, 18 and 35, so the younger millennials uh, and Gen Z, they are more left leaning than earlier generational cohorts. And part of that has left leaning posture has allowed the socialist squad to smuggle in anti-Israel sentiment as part of this other package uh, of rights causes that the left, uh, champions, whether that's black lives matter, whether that's, um, LGBTQ, whether that's, um, global human rights, which is usually, uh, LGBTQ related, um, whether that's even climate justice, so-called, right? All of a sudden, anti-Israel is part of this broader matrix of left-wing ideas that this generational cohort just seems more open to because of the way they were raised and the culture that they've been accustomed to. So technology, the general zeitgeist all play a part. Um, And then I would say too, There have been changes in American politics that are accelerating this divide over the state of Israel. As Israel has become more religious, more nationalist, so has the American right. Israel's history and culture has many left-wing attributes or classically liberal attributes, but its politics is pretty conservative, mainly as a result of the security issue over the last 20 years, the breakdown of the Oslo peace process, the threat from Iran. Israel's political culture is very hawkish. And as the recent elections have shown, There is a large constituency to the right of Benjamin Netanyahu, to the right of the Likud, which had been traditionally the most conservative party in Israeli politics. And so the connection, the, the relationship that America and Israel have, as our conservative politics become more alike, that has driven the left in the opposite direction, and so while there are many Democrats who continue to be pro-Israel, and I will say I have been so hardened by some of the responses on behalf of Israel and on behalf of Jewish Americans to 10-7 from Democratic elected officials, even some surprises. I was not expecting John Fetterman of Pennsylvania to be a champion of the Jewish state, but he has been exemplary in his efforts. So the main in the main... It is always important to remember the American people are pro-Israel, the American government is pro-Israel, right, of both parties. But when you look at the fringes, you begin to see the social justice left slowly making gains politically, slowly increasing their footprint in the Congress, partly, by the way, as a result of the reaction to our own nationalists and religious Figures in the United States, they start growing, and that is how this anti-Israel viewpoint becomes more pronounced in the halls of the United States Congress.
1: Yeah, yeah, and certainly at a much faster rate at our colleges. uh, I can discuss that with you further for a few hours. Unfortunately, we are at time, Uh, so I wanted to move to the final question, which we ask all of our guests um, and very importantly for for students on campus that might be listening, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? Uh,
2: what, wow, that's a great question. Uh, I know a lot more than I knew when I was in college. <laughs> I didn't really discover yeah. uh, the world of conservatism until I was a junior in college, and of course mm-hmm. uh, it, it changed my life. My life has been spent in conservative institutions, conservative politics, conservative mm-hmm. journalism. Um, I... I here's what I wish I knew if I were in college today. And that is there are a whole mm-hmm. group. There's a whole set of institutions where one can find a liberal arts education unsullied by ideology um, support networks to help professional development development, I don't think that they were as visible when I was in college 20 years ago. I don't think many of them existed. And I'm speaking here of the Hertog Foundation and the Hertog Political Studies Program, with which I'm associated. I'm talking about the American Enterprise Institute Summer Honors Program and all of our various programs. Hudson Institute has the same thing. The new University of of Austin that uh, Barry Weiss and Neil Ferguson are involved in. There are more and more institutions being built to help young people who want to see the alternative to the campus that they know, who want to actually have something of a liberal arts education, who want to understand American exceptionalism and America's place in the world and how that relates to the exceptional state of Israel as well. Israel shouldn't be the exception, but it it, it is. <laughs> Israel should just be another country, but it is held to different standards than other countries. It is it is the only country on earth whose existence is questioned. Think about that. Why? Why? Well, I think we know the answer. So, if I were in college today, I would I would want to know that there are all these different places where I can learn, where I can meet like-minded people, where I can seek out mentors and uh, where I can help uh, form the basis of a more positive future.
1: Yeah. Well, as to paraphrase Irving Crystal, those whom the gods seek to destroy their first attempt to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict, but it's uh, <laughs> <Right>. very encouraging <laughs> to know that there are institutions empowering our students to do that, uh, and that there are still many, many American minds uh, that know the difference between good and evil and right and wrong. here. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for your time. Uh, We really appreciate it, and it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you, Joshua.
0: I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.